Stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we launch into the language game, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists for the English-speaking market in the German market for buying, selling, and managing properties. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.com or next-estate.de. Speaking of language, let's get into the language game. In today's book, our guests outline a revolutionary perspective that overhauls almost everything we thought we knew about language. We will hear how the game of charades reveals deep insights into how language works. We'll hear how our brain can improvise linguistic moves at an astonishingly rapid rate. We'll hear how languages are in continual flux, how people without a common tongue can rapidly create a language from scratch, and why it's likely that language has been independently reinvented countless times. We will also realize how the creation of language is not only important in itself, it also changed the nature of evolution. That's just a taste of the many topics that we'll cover today in this magnificent book. The story of language is the story of humanity, the new understanding of language that our guests outlined in this book radically re revises our conception of ourselves. It's a great pleasure to welcome the author of this magnificent book, Nick Chater and Morton Christensen, authors of The Language Game. Welcome to the show. Wonderful to be Thank here. You. It's great to have you on the show. And th one of the things you talk about in the book is that our brains became bigger than other mammals. But one of the things I was saying to you off air before we came on is unfortunately our attention span is becoming less and less. And I thought we'd start before we go on a deep dive into the book and the topics that you cover, those revolutionary topics that I mentioned in the introduction, that we'd start with what's the big idea that you're proposing in the book for those people whose attention wanes and don't join us for the entire discussion? Well, one of the things that we focus on in the book is the, the fact that language is fundamentally collaborative and that in many ways, the way we've looked at language before is that people have been looking at it in ways that uh, treat language more as monologue rather than dialogue. And the fact is that we are very collaborative and improvisational when we are interacting with one another. And it's that interaction that we have with another that's sort of fundamental to how we use language how language have allowed us to become the most powerful creature on earth for better and worse. And just to amplify the point about improvisation, the, the key metaphor in the book, which Aidan's also already mentioned, is this metaphor of charades. And so the, but when we're playing charades, we're, we're, we're gesturing, we're trying to get across some idea of the moment to make you think of um, King Kong or whatever, you know, feel more book ahead in mind by some sort of bizarre, bizarre sort of um, you know, waving of the arms. And the, it's obvious when we're doing that, that the process is, 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 is it's clearly very variable from one person to the next, from one situation to the next. It's, it is an improvisation. Um, but on the other hand, um, it's still a very effective way of getting information across. And the thing about charades is that it makes it clear that we're incredibly uh, clever sort of communicative problem solvers. You've got a, a challenge, which is, you know, gone with the wind. You think, oh, how on earth do I do that? I mean, how do I wind the wind? Oh, well, and you think of something, uh, or maybe you take a scene from the movie or you, whatever it is, um, and you can do that in a really, really uh, creative, open-ended way. 
And I think when we tend to think about language, going back to Morton's point about monologue, and also to some extent um, written language, we tend to think that language is a fixed system. Whereas when we're playing charades, it's obviously we're not obviously we're not dealing with a fixed system because we're we're creating it on, in the moment. But of course, if we play charades many times with the same person, we start to use the same conventions. We think, oh, well, I did King Kong before, so now I've got to do something plant of the apes. Well, I can do that and get the ape thing across, and now we've got to do you know, the earth or something. Um, so I can use conventions that we just made up a moment ago and reuse them. And as you play more and more with the same person, of course, you're going to do that in a ever richer, more complicated way. And the the insight I think that underpins the book is that you can should see the process of creating a language both within um, parent-child interactions, but also within a community of speakers, essentially as uh, an endless and ever more elaborate game of charades where the convention is getting ever richer and ever deeper. And of course, in practice, when, when a new child comes into the world, they're not starting uh, their charade play from scratch. They're, they're coming into a community where we've already built a lot of conventions. But the open-ended improvisational nature of that process of creating these conventions is still, still going. It's still open-ended. We're still using uh, creativity and problem solving to get a message across and thinking, oh, no, but hang on, but language now, it's not like that. It's it's a completely rigid system of conventions. Every word has a meaning. The words have grammar rules and they all fit together in a perfect uh, perfect harmony. We can write them all down. That's that's a really a mistake. It's a complex, uh, continually evolving, open-ended system of improvisations, which, um, which, which, which is ultimately a product of, of human collaborativeness and inventiveness. I was laughing at that, Nick, when I read that about how in charades or charades, as we'd say here in Ireland, we, you build on, you, you establish a term. And I actually remember playing Gone with the Wind at Christmas time with my own family. And at the time, my father had a bit of a flatulence problem. <laughs> And every time, every time wind came up later on, we just point to him <laughs> and everybody built on it. So I absolutely got the point when, when you talked about building on conventions. But one of the really interesting things you start the book is with this scene. So you bring us to the scene. There's even a, an image of this scene where Captain Cook and his, his crew land and have to communicate with the house hunter gatherers. And this really sets the scene beautifully. Yes. Yeah, so um, this was at the time when uh, Captain Cook was charged with uh, going around South America to Tahiti, where they were going to observe the transit of, of Venus. And they needed to get some water and some firewood on the way. So they stopped in at the very tip of South America at Tierra del Fuego. And when they went ashore, they saw some native inhabitants, but they withdrew. But then... Not long after, they came back again, and then two men from uh, Captain's Cook crew went forward uh, on their own, and then two people from the house also came forward. But very interestingly, they had some sticks, and they sort of held them out in front of them and threw them aside. And Captain Cook and his men, they took that as indication that the house, that they were probably, that's what we think they were. It's, it's not entirely clear, but they probably were a, a band of a house um, indigenous people. They took the the fact that they threw away the stakes as an indication that they had friendly intention. And indeed, that was actually the case. So very soon thereafter, they were exchanging gifts and some of the house even came aboard ship uh, on the HMS uh, Endeavour. And essentially, they were playing sort of a, a, a game of high stakes cross-cultural charades, even though they had no common language and they looked really different from one another for the house. 
the European must just look very strange in their sort of waistcoats and all their, their their fine regalia. And likewise, the house looked very odd to the Europeans as well. Yet they were able to find sort of part of this common humanity, some common ground so that they could communicate with one another. And the house helped uh, Cook and his men find fresh water and so on. And um, they were sort of together for a few days and then uh, Captain Cook uh, went off. And so really that's sort of a, a nice sort of illustration of what we can do even if we have no common language. And of course, normally when we do have a common language, we have so much more power in our ability to play charades linguistically and even uh, non-linguistically. I love that story because it really shows that we can form a language. And again, I thought again about the conventions that you built. So once they've built a convention, they'll refer to it again. And that's how rapidly we can acquire language. And we're really adaptable in that way. And later on, we'll talk about some of the amazing stories you talk about of actually developing language, even though if you're blind, deaf and dumb, you can still find a way to communicate with people. But let's build on the idea of language as charades, because I thought that we shared the thought experiment that you mentioned by Michael Tomasello. So he had, he had a very, I think, good intuition that if, if we imagine we had two different islands, and so let's call where we have a set of children. So on one island, you have children that can only use manual gestures, but not uh, speak. And then on the other island, uh, we have children that can only speak, but not use gestures, or rather they cannot really speak because they have no language, but they can just vocalize. And so one island we can call gesture island, the other island we can call, we can call uh, vocalization island. And what, what, what Tomasello was thinking is that, that if we are, if these children imagine they got food and so on, but there was, there was nobody to teach them how to, how to communicate, they could quickly on the gesture island, they could use gestures to indicate sort of, you know, uh, go that way, or this is how we cook things and so on. But he, he was reasoning that, that, and in, I think intuitive for a lot of people that, that might sort of make sense that on vocalization island, if they couldn't use gestures, they wouldn't really be able to communicate much apart from maybe sort of indicate sort of fear or cry and something like that. However, Marcus Perlman created a competition called the vocalization challenge, where there was actually a prize for where you had people from around the world try to create sounds made by the human vocal apparatus, but no speech sounds for a variety of different concepts, such as tiger, water, uh, a number of other things. And then he would take all these entries and then play them to people that then had to guess whether it referred to a picture of, say, a knife or water or a tiger and so on. And people like could, could do this really well. And then he did it even across the world and found that people around the world were able to guess which was which, indicating that even in our vocal apparatus, apparatus we actually have the ability to create sounds that can sort of in our minds give us the idea of what it's actually referring to. So, so language can can both use gestures to indicate meaning, but also the sounds themselves. It's so interesting because intuitively, and exactly what Thomas Hello was um, trading on this intuition, a very reasonable intuition it is, intuitively it feels to most of us that the iconicity of gesture is the ability to, as it were, create something that resembles the target is greater with gesture than it is with sound. It feels like if I want to, you know, uh, I, I can play out an action with my hands. I can you know, mime throwing something or I can mime you know, grinding a pepper mill. Um, and similarly, I, maybe I can you know, pretend to be an animal. But it turns out that 
they're actually pretty good at that vocally as well. So it's so if, if you if you talk about intuition at face value and thought gesture is better at doing these kind of iconic once um, uh, representations where the the, the 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 signal is supposed to resemble the thing it's going to refer to, then you might think, well, it must be the case then that that languages start off being gestural and only become uh, vocal later on. Um, but the the Perlman's work suggests it's not so straightforward as that. Actually, vocal vocal gesturing is itself very, very flexible and, and iconic. And we can do wonderful glug-lug sounds and grinding sounds and cutting sounds and all kinds of peculiar things, which which actually make, make the you know, make acoustical uh, communication pretty flexible too. So I think there's a big, big debate in the um, language evolution field, uh, which is going to be a very hard debate ever to really to resolve for sure, which is con- concerns the question of whether a language started initially as gestural and then became gradually more vocal or whether it's always been both or it started um, primarily vocal. Um, but um, but I think it's much less clear than one might imagine. But the Chirard story, although of course Chirard's is itself gestural, our Chirard story is really a story about this process of going from the, the moment you improvised iconic kind of um, communication to this more systematic set of conventions. So we're not taking a stand on that. That's not our... You know, that, that's not our area of expertise, and I suspect it's going to be very hard to, to tease it out. But it's actually surprising, as Morton says, how how amazingly good we are at um, at, at, at acoustic um, charades, essentially. And I think if, if we if we think of you know language and communication as as a as a kind of way of solving communicative problems at the moment, it makes sense that probably. Originally, we might have used, or humans uh, or early homonyms might have used both sound and gesture simply because that gives you the most uh, chances for being understood and solving the communicative challenges of the moment. So one of the things I, I mentioned in the intro, guys, was the idea that this is a revolutionary approach. The idea of language as charades or charades is I'm building on your convention now, Nick, of charades. <laughs> you may just I be throw me. my own charades <laughs> out the window. But the the idea, one of the ideas that's kind of, as a result, kind of thrown to the wayside, or at least uprooted, was the transmission model as described by Claude Shannon. And it's probably worthwhile sharing what that is to our audience and why then the language of charades uproots that. Yeah, I mean, perhaps I could say a little bit about that. So the, the the sort of traditional idea, which I think is 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 very intuitive, is that I have a thought in my head. I want to get the, that thought into your head, so I turn my thought into words, and the words essentially encapsulate the thought. So it's like a message in a bottle. I put my thought into some words. I send a, send a little bottle of words across to you. Then you think, oh, what, what, what does this mean? I have a read, turn it back into a thought. Aha, we've got it. So that, from that point of view, what we need from a language is a is a way of um, encoding and decoding thoughts. So it's like a code. It's like a code challenge, really. Um, we, of course, uh, with with co- codes, normally we often want to make them secret and hard to crack. Here, we want to make them easy to crack. We want I want to get my message across to you as easily as possible. But that's, I think, a very a very misleading perspective because it suggests that the the code is. Um, there's a sort of fixed thing. There's a sort of fixed way of taking thoughts and turning them into words and turning them back again. And actually, of course, uh, that is that is a, a way that for, for many years people have tried to do natural language understanding. It's not necessarily the way it's done now, but in computers, the, the starting point assumption was, well, we need some sort of 
understanding of the logical form of thoughts we need to then be able to turn them into to words in some systematic way and build an algorithm to do that and then we need to have another algorithm to go the other way now the the, the charades perspective and i'm having an urge to say charades now because i'm being entrained by you Aiden, and then more than another charades person as well so yeah, it's, it's all it's all good um the the, the charades perspective makes one think instead no of course the there's no fixed you don't need a fixed code which says you know this part of the code means this in fact the very same gesture so uh might at one moment be uh trying to get across king kong or if we're dealing with um got or, or got some part of gone with the wind so it might be the same gesture might be you know i'm just i'm gesturing at this film or it might be your poor poor father or uncle whoever it was with his uh digestive challenges or, or it might be some very abstract conception of uh of wind in a some meteorological context or anything else and, and in, in reality the, the the thing we're always doing this goes back to the dialogue and Point as well we're trying to communicate in a particular situation so i've got a particular challenge right now here in front of me i want you, you to, to to act in some way or um, catch on to something i'm thinking so i'm going to use some words which will push you in the right direction it's not that there's a standardized solution to the problem it's like in this situation given what we just said i think um doing a king kong um arm waving action is going to do the trick that'll make you think monkeys or something and that's what i want because i want planted the apes or apes aren't monkeys um but I, so I'm trying to push you in a particular direction and get you down that channel in this particular moment. But similarly in daily life, we're, we're always talking about, oh, can you pass the cup? And you might think, oh, well, with the, or the code view, you think, well, a cup now, you know, what exactly is a cup? Let's try and really nail that down. And of course, in a way, we've had centuries, more than centuries really of philosophy trying to figure out, you know, is there any uh, such a thing as an essence of a cup? I mean, a platonic uh, ideal or if it's not ideals, is there a, a definition? Or there must be something that, that pins down what we mean when we're using the code, as it were, the code word cup. Whereas from a Schwarz perspective, that's just not right at all. Your cup is just whatever's good enough. It, it can be used in whatever way you like, as long as it's good enough to pick out the thing that I care about in the moment. So if I have a bunch of, of mugs, and um, and I don't care which one you give me, if, you say, if I say pass me a, a cup, that's fine. You're just going to pass me a mug. If there are cups and mugs, then if I want a mug, I better say mug. Otherwise, I'm going to get a cup. Um, and if there are cups which are prizes, like sort of the um, you know sort of winning a cup in uh, I don't know the, 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 a football or something, then I've got to distinguish between that kind of cup and a and a mug, uh, which may not be necessary because it may be obvious I'm wanting a cup of coffee, or it may be that I'm at a prize ceremony. So passing the cup is obviously not going to not going to get very far if you try to hand over a cup of coffee. But you know, the situation will often do the work for us. But the, the, the key point is that there's no, it doesn't, it, it doesn't ultimately, uh, the, the communication doesn't ultimately depend on there being a, a fixed code underneath everything. I think that the revolution in a sense is that once upon a time with the code model in mind, one thinks, yes, okay, there's all this contextual stuff that helps you use language in flexible ways, but deep down, there's a core meaning to every word. And there's a core way in which all the words fit together. And then you can do a bit of clever stuff on top of that. But the Shrey's perspective makes you think, no, that's totally wrong. Um, there's no core meaning to throwing down some sticks. There's no core meaning to waving your arms in the air. And there isn't in language too. Each, each time you use a communicative gesture, you're going to trade on the gestures you used before. But that's not to say that ultimately we can say, oh, well, really, deep down, that word means this, or you know, the grammatical rules are these. That's that's never becomes crystallized or crystal clear it doesn't have to because we're you know, in fact it's the open-ended ingenious nature of human communication allows us to 
um, to continually twist and change the way we mean the, uh, the way meanings work in a way that works with the situation we're in at the moment. And also, you know, following on on, on this is that uh, the, the, on, on the one hand, the idea of language as rate also captures the flexibility of language on the one hand, but also uh, one of the problems with the uh, sort of transmission uh, model is that that it can that language becomes very brittle because it that's very thin signal that goes across from one mind to the other. And, and, and in fact, Claude Shannon was very concerned about noise on this channel. That's what, what, what his theory was all about, how you can try to deal with that. Because he was really coming up with this, uh, this idea of uh, transmission uh, information theory in terms of trying to figure out how essentially phone conversation could be improved and so on. That's what he was working on a long, long time ago. And, and in fact, he, in his original work, he, he, specifically noted that meaning has nothing to do with it, whereas when from the viewpoint of language as you write, meaning has everything to do with it. That's the that's the primary uh, goal that we are trying to get across. We're trying to get some ideas across in, in some way uh, or another. And, and so in that way, what really becomes important is that words and phrases and sentences are just cues uh, or clues to what we are trying to say. But it's the collaborative nature of we are trying to say something, you're trying to sort of unpack that, but also we, we need to take the audience into account. So just like when you're making a podcast, you, when you're talking to people and when you're sort of trying to talk, you need to think about what, what does the audience know? What does the audience not know? And you need to take that into account. So in a sense, when you're doing, even when you're doing a podcast, you are collaborating with the audience in terms of trying to present whatever information you're trying to present in the way that makes the most sense to them, given their background, given what they're likely to know and not know. I'm going to jump right to the end of the book and then come back because you, you teed us up nicely for Shannon and essentially it, it was almost like a mechanistic way of studying language versus a humanistic way. One of the problems with the mechanistic way is that it also suggests that we're like computers, but uh, uh, like computers which random access memory, they can hold uh, only a certain amount of working memory at any one time to be used. And that's why we get the scroll wheel of death on the computer. But in a similar sense, we can only hold a certain amount of language or uh, of information in working memory at any time. Hence the Miller paper, 1956, the magical number seven plus or minus two. So, so that, that leads us to the now or never bottleneck, this funnel of information that we have that can get clogged up. So I'm going to pause that for a moment because we'll come back to that in a second. And I'm going to jump right to the end of the book because you kind of alluded to this about the cups, the different types of cups versus mugs versus an award. One of the really interesting things you talked about is that how language can shape perception. And I found this absolutely fascinating and very interesting for the audience of this show. Because if, for example, you're the leader in an organization, the language you choose and making that language accessible to your audience and depending on who you're talking to. So I'm saying, for example, as I'm the leader of the organization and I'm talking to the team that's building a new business model, I'm going to speak and communicate to them very differently than I would to the legacy organization. Because if I speak to them in the same way, they might become competitors and actually as a result, the organization suffers. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested by later on in the book where you talked about, say, in Greek, 
Greek has different words for light blue and dark blue versus me in English. Uh, it's just, I call it dark blue or light blue. And if I'm learning a language that way, that becomes interesting and how across different regions and different nationalities and different, different, uh, different tribes, people have different languages for different colors. Some, some don't even have language for some colors. That is absolutely mind blowing. And the fact that language can shape perception is really important to understand. Yeah, I mean, can I, I'll start on that one. Um, I mean, I think this, there's, the, the, in psychology, there's been this debate going back and uh, not that much less than a century now um, about whether the way in which language shapes perception. And it's been a very sort of um, fractious debate because on the one hand, you have people who say, well, of course, the way you use language changes everything about thought. It changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you conceptualize the world. And that's one one perspective, especially associated with um, linguists uh, Sapir and, and Benjamin Wharf. Um, and on the other hand, you have psychologists saying, oh, no, no, language is, uh, going back to the code perspective, actually, language is really a secondary thing. The thinking is is, is um, uh, primary, and you just translate your thoughts into language. So the language really doesn't matter very much. And there's a big sort of space in between those two perspectives, which I think is a space we want to inhabit, which is to say, well, when you think about it, uh, if you, again, take the Shiraz perspective, um, the ability, the, the, the language doesn't shape shape thought in as far as if you have a new challenge, a new situation, a new thing to communicate about, you can create some language to do it. Now, you've got this amazing creative potential. So if you're dealing with an organization in, in, in flux and there's some new new challenge you face and you haven't quite got the words for the different parts of the organization or the, the different products even or the, um, uh, the different kind of target audiences which might be you know, continually fracturing and changing, yet you can you can re rethink that all the time. And we see that, of course, in technology. We're always create, creating and new, new words, and uh, we're doing that in, in, in the arts, continually inventing words for new musical styles, and just new ways of doing things generally, and new styles of cookery. And we, we're continual, continual uh, creators. And even when we're using existing words, we're using them in different ways. So, so it's not that language is a kind of prison that you're stuck in, um, but on the other hand, um, depending on what conventions you've laid down, what charade you've played so far, it makes it so much easier to communicate some things than other things. So if I live in a world where there's already two words for light and dark blue, then to me, that's very obvious, very salient. And in fact, it does. Um, and there are very interesting experiments to show this. It does mean that when I see a light or a dark blue, I classify them as much, fun, much more fundamentally different than if I'm in a language like English, where I don't see them as different. And you, you can see that in terms of actual brain activity. So so it's not just that that's going on because I'm thinking secretly. I'm thinking, oh, green, oh, blue, or oh, light blue. It's not that you're hearing, as it were, traces of the traces of the the, the words flowing through my head, and, and and that's that's been very cleverly shown with a number of clever, neat experiments. Um, but so the, the the ease with which you can think things—that's what language is really changing. It's like a you think you think of language for a moment like a tool, a communicative tool, or a, a very open-ended communicative toolbox. The toolbox is. Is very generative. You can always create new tools from your old tools, and you can do that indefinitely. Um, but having a tool lying around that really changes everything. Uh, so if we're trying to communicate with each other, we don't have the right tools to make it easy. You know, we're going to get tremendous in a tremendous pickle. Um, so finding finding the right tools is very crucial. But also understanding, as it were, the toolbox of the other person and having a sense of you know, what are what are they? You know, how how are we able to commonly understand the predicament we're in? 
So, you know, so, so a classic you, you see, of course, in organizational context is when one company takes another over. Um, then there's all kinds of clashes about you know, the ways in which things are talked about and uh, people are referred to, and even you know, just the, the kind of style of language people use. So that we have informality or informality or all these things. Vocabulary. You may even have charade, charade type clashes. And, and, and if, you, if you do clash on that, if you're in a kind of organizational takeover context, that might be, be a sign of you know, real difficulty because you think, ah, there they are with their charades versus their charades. We have a charades. They're just being difficult just to be for the sake of it so you can even get these 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 um linguistic differences themselves becoming as it were symbolic um of of, of dissonance so, so that yeah trying to find a harmonious common way of classifying the world which is always open-ended and always changing but finding that is really critical i think in in successfully not just successfully communicating but successfully allowing people to work harmoniously together in just about any context really and that also becomes particularly important when you consider companies that work across multiple countries where they speak different languages. So actually having some knowledge of these other languages that can give you insight into some subtle cultural aspects that can be important for having sort of very smooth organizational uh, sort of interactions and so on. So it's oftentimes under underappreciated just how much you can learn about another culture from being able to speak the language. And so, you know, so this is also a good argument for knowing more than one language in many cases, especially if you're working with companies that are uh, working internationally uh, as well. Thank you for entertaining that as well, because I think it's so interesting and why the book is, is so interesting, I found for, for transformational change in any sense, because understanding, as you said, the language of the recipient is so important because it's, it's, that's who you're really talking about. You, you, one of the studies you talked about was that famous builder architect uh, experiment where you have to communicate how to build something from the other side. And the most important language to speak in is of the builder, not the architect. And I often think about how leaders in organizations speak from their perspective. And it's almost like message sent that's job done but it's actually about message received maybe you'll share that famous study as well because this is really important to understand yes yeah, so there's a very interesting work done done by a variety of people but especially well as strongly associated with herb clark at stanford um and herbs are lots of experiments where you get people to do things along the following lines so um but one person has got to let's say we're needing not with construction in the first instance, but um, uh, building, making, um, recognizing, recognizing patterns. So one person, so the one person has a bunch of tangrams. So these are these triangular shapes that you can build into little funny pictures. So they have a stack of tangrams in front of them, and they've got to pick one of those tangrams out. So that's the one that I want you to choose. The, the other person can see the same set of tangrams, but they, I can't just point. I've got to describe. So I've got to say, well, what is it that what is special about my tangram? And they all are just you know, essentially um, arbitrary geometric patterns, just triangles laid on top of each other in peculiar, peculiar ways. Luckily, though, um, the human visual system is rather good at thinking, oh, that one looks a bit like a Christmas tree, or that's kind of like a rocket. So, so pretty soon, after doing quite a lot of this, you start to develop a vocabulary for different kinds of tangrams, and so so things like you know the the guy leaning against the tree or the the you know the, the, the rocket or whatever become you know, standardized things, and we can get very quick. And of course, the same thing applies if we're trying to get someone to to create something. 
Um, so if we're trying to get them to build a tangram or, or, or build something out of Lego or, or build some Ikea furniture, they have the same challenge. So I, I know what it's supposed to look like. I know what you're supposed to be building, but you, but I've got to tell you. So now, instead of picking out a set of options, I, you've got to go through a sequence of instructions. That's a sequence of stages to create the, the target. And I can see you doing it and thinking, oh, no, that's not what I meant. So I've got to go back and so on. Um, but what's remarkable about those processes is that that, that we we are actually astonishingly good at them. Um, we're amazingly flexible. People are extremely good at reformulating what they've said. So they'll say something and it goes wrong. They say, no, 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 no think about it this way. Think about it that way. So they'll find ways of backing up, uncovering common assumptions, thinking, oh, I, I thought I, when I said that, uh, I thought I meant I, I, I meant this, but you picked up this other thing. Oh, well, I, you know, I'm now going to reformulate and change that. So it's amazingly, it's, it's amazingly fluid. Uh, another set of very interesting experiments along the same lines is done by um, a, a team involving Simon Garrett and Tony Sanford and, and others in, in Glasgow, uh, where they look at maps. So here, the, you've got a challenge of one person's, both, both people can see a map. One person knows a, a route that, that they want the other person to follow, and they've got to describe it, and the other person's got to follow the, the route. But the devious trick they use is that they make the maps different. So, so there is actually a flaw in the in the correspondence, and then and they do that because then they they want people to struggle and they want to look at how people you know I, I deal with those struggles and it's it's pretty hard for people to think hang on yeah so you're you're saying you know at the T junction then to the left there's a tree and then to the right there's there's not there's a I know, a blue square but I'm not seeing that and then you know, then, then gradually people can with a lot of effort untangle hey we're seeing a different world this is not the same thing or we're seeing things differently. Um, and there's a whole whole world of these these tasks. That, that, that the upshot of all of it is that it's this that people are amazingly flexible collaborators. And I think everyone comes out of one of these tasks feeling very foolish. That as a subject, certainly if you've ever done one, you think, oh, I was hopeless. I, I tried to communicate this and I didn't quite get it. And oh, but as an experimenter, you're just you, you are astounded. I think by people's cleverness and flexibility because you're kind of giving them a sort of impossible task, and weirdly, they can kind of do it. That sounds like um, any journey with me and my wife in the car with the map, except it's the same map, but we still have the same challenges. <laughs> yeah, and, and the classic, of course, is that you, you look at the map and you look at the world outside, you think, these do not seem to be the same. <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? But we get there eventually. We get there eventually. I mentioned earlier on, and I, it, it's so important, and it's one of the, the foundational elements of the book as well. There, were, there was two things. There's the iceberg metaphor. But also there's the now or never bottleneck. And this is where I was alluding to the limited memory that we have and the need to use information as quickly as possible in order to keep in flow, even in a dialogue like this, because we hum and haw and we buy ourselves time on a consistent basis. There's a lot in this, but I'd love you to take us through it. Yes. So one of the things that we completely unaware of normally is just how limited uh, our sensory and sort of auditory memory is. So for example, the, the, the sound that we produce disappear within uh, about you know, a tenth of a second, which is just incredibly short-lived. And so we have to do something with the speed signal right away. Um, but then on top of that, um, uh, people speak really fast. So on the one hand, sound disappears almost instantly. Uh, yet people produce about up to 150 words uh, per minute, and that that's incredibly fast. Um, and then 
In addition to that, not only is the sound very short-lived and we speak really fast, but our memory for combinations of sounds are really short-lived. So there's a classic experiment from the 1960s where people were presented with just four non-speech sounds. So say uh, a tone, a, hu a hiss, a buzz, uh, another tone. And they, all they had to do was just remember the order of that. And they, they couldn't do it. And And so... So it's amazing that we can even understand anything. So what we have to do, so we call this under uh, sort of the now and never bottleneck because you have to deal with the input as you hear it. You can't just wait. And, and of course, we all experience this in some sense that if you somebody is talking to us and we get distracted just for, for a few seconds, then it's, it's all gone. And so what we have to do, um, we and others have suggested, essentially we have sort of chunk the input as quickly as we can. We have to sort of form a unit. And, and maybe I can sort of provide an, an example of how we do this sort of intuitively without even thinking about it. So if I was to, so I'm going to do a little test with you here, Aiden. Um, so I'm going to read some letters for you, and then I want you to say them back to me when I, when I say go. Okay, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. T N A V I O N O. I N go. T N A V O I uh, V O I A. I th I think <laughs> pretty good. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. It's it's tough because you know there's there's quite a lot of letters. I just so normally there is this limitations on our memory, which is about four mm -hmm. uh, to seven, depending on which psychologist you talk about. But let me give you another chance here, because this is, of course, this is the innovation show. So I want to give you another chance here. Okay. So innovative. Okay. I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N. Go. I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N. <laughs> Right. Amazing! How did you do that? What, what did you do? How did you manage that? That's the same. It was the same number of letters as before, but somehow you could remember all of them. What did you do? So I, I chunked. I found a pre-stored pattern, and uh, yeah, that's how. I, and I, I tried to do that actually by the first time. I was trying to make. I was trying to make a pattern out of it. I was trying to chunk the information, and I just failed. But actually, what, what you did in the first one, you actually did chunk it into sort of about a four-letter chunk, which, which is sort of roughly what you can do. So, so you were on the right track. But of course, what is important about the second one is that you already know the word innovation, and that allows you to take all those letters, chunk them together so they're one unit, and then that sort of allows you to sort of keep that in memory more easily. And so what we are suggesting is we're doing something very similar when we are processing language in real time. Um, now, of course, we're not thinking about it in the same way that you're thinking about the letters, but we're doing it automatically. And we're doing that at different levels. So we're doing it at, at individual sounds, at word combinations, uh, and even at higher level until we sort of have a, a some sort of representation in our minds of, of the meaning of what is being said. I thought, and maybe you'll build on this, because I, I think this is, again, so important for our audience as well. And one of the the ways I way I think and why I like to read eclectic range of books and write then I write as much as possible as close to after reading them as possible is because I use metaphor to try and transmit complex thoughts or complex concepts, particularly when it comes to innovation. And I think this is one of the things that's often overlooked with organizational change as well, is that if you can find a pre-stored pattern for somebody, 
and kind of go, this is like that, then people go, oh, is that all it is? And it's such a foundational element. And I mentioned to you before, George Lakoff was on the show talking mm. about metaphor. It's so important for learning. Yeah, I mean, the Lakoff's perspective is quite important to the way we've been thinking about these things, actually. Um, so I, I think the, 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 the general idea that the mind is a, has, has kind of deep theories about how the world works, like to, for example, deep dramas or deep understanding of human nature or deep deep, deep physics. That, that's an idea actually that's very popular in, in this psychology and cognitive sciences. But the Lakoff perspective and our perspective too would be that's really the wrong way to think about it. What we're actually doing when we're understanding the world, whether it's understanding a, a chunk, a new chunk of language or understanding um, what someone's doing or understanding the way the organization is changing, is we're, we're making much shallower but analogical connections. We're thinking, oh, this, this pattern here, oh, I've seen that before. It looks a bit like that pattern. And that, so you're making these kind of lateral connections between one case and another case and another case. And uh, goes back to our conventions. So the conventions in, in language through your process of charades are being created by relating one convention to a previous one you had already. And that might be related direct to another, another one. What you're not doing is saying, oh, let's step back from all of this and create a deep system. If the, the perfect, as it were, the perfect uh, language, which will so solve all you know, communicative challenges. Or if it were, you know, say you're dealing with um, understanding organizations, you might think, well, what we really need is a, a, the ultimate theory of organizational change. We need to have a you know, set of principles which explain how it all works. And if we only had that, would be great. Well, that would be great. We don't have, no one has that. Uh, but it's okay because we are able to map the current challenge, the current problem onto things we've done before, which we have done kind of quite well. So we'll, you know, we can make that mapping and, and then cope with the, the present. And this sort of process of, of continual improvised coping is what we're doing you know, at every scale, really, in human life. But we're certainly doing it in the case of language. Um, you don't have to have a complete theory of every aspect of English. And in fact, I mean, you know, none of us, uh, we're all fluent uh, uh, English speakers. And uh, 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 Morton is probably the, at least as fluent as I am, though not a native speaker, slightly embarrassingly for me. Um, but, um, but but none of us could write down a grammar of English. In fact, the, the, the actual, the best approximation to the grammar of English written down a, 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 is a you know, gigantic book um, uh, by, um, oh, I've lost one of the names, Pullum and another very famous linguist, and I've somehow forgotten, the, forgotten who I am. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful book, and it's a, more than a thousand pages. And it's extremely detailed, and you know, I don't know any of it. Um, it is an explicit level, and I couldn't reconstruct it. I'm not clever enough to, to reconstruct it. And even then, it's it's you know, full, full of gaps and holes. Not not because it's English is an in, in, inevitably continually uh, changing thing, um, but it's okay. I don't have to have that theory. All I have to have is lots of experience of practical communication. Um, which will allow me to cope with the next practical challenge. And I think that's you know, the, that's the way that the brain is always skimming on the surface, coping with a world that's far too complex to really have deep theories about, but it's not too complex to have analogies and met to create metaphors for. And that you know, that's essentially the, the thing that allows us to cope with a world that's so, so complex. So that leads us nicely to something you alluded to there, which is, and I loved how you teed this up and you used a metaphor here, you said it was like the Toyota just in time strategies. <laughs> and the same way our brains do that. And, you know, one of the things that doing the show on a regular basis does is it does teach you to be a better listener. But I of often feel guilty sometimes because you'll say something and I'll kind of go, Oh, I must ask the guys about that. But 
so I don't lose the flow of the conversation, I don't write it down. So I have to hold it there somewhere. And as a result, I'm probably not as active as a listener as I, I could be. But your book kind of made me forgive myself a bit because you're kind of going, you kind of have to be. Because one of the guests we had on the show before was a guy called Julian Treasure. And he he wrote a book called How to Be Heard. And he found it so interesting that it was it's one of the top TED talks of all time. It's not how to speak, it's how to be heard. And he talked about this strategy that we use called script writing what is what he called it where you're speaking and I'm writing down in my mind straight away what I'm going to say next. And most people do that and they, they can't actively listen. It's a very difficult skill to master. But as you say in the book, we kind of have a reason for that. And that goes back to the magical number seven plus or minus two. One of the things that, that people have discovered in, in sort of analyzing interaction between people across languages and cultures is that that we actually do it incredibly fast. So on so across cultures, across languages, on average, that's about a quarter of a second between one person finishes their turn and then the other person responds in some way. And that means that that you actually have to start planning what you want to say before the other person have finished what they say. So one of the things that we have to do sort of very quickly as we are listening to one another, so figuring out, is the other person asking a question? Are they making a statement? Are they asking us to do something? And then as soon as we, we have to sort of figure out in, in what, what, they're, what they're trying to say, and then we have to start formulating our response because, I mean, just formulating a response, if I was to show you a picture of something and you just had to name what it is, say I show you a picture of a cat and all you have to do is say cat, that takes you about 600 milliseconds. So what that means is that you actually have to start even you know, beginning to sort of program how you're going to move your mouth around to produce the sounds that we use to speak before I'm done talking. And so that's why sometimes it's it, it can be good sometimes to sort of take a moment before you answer, just if you want to sort of really take into account what the other person is saying. But under normal circumstances, we're just shooting the breeze and so on. That's how that's how quickly we talk. But on the other hand, it is, of course, as we are talking, we're also building up over time an understanding of what the other person is saying, what we are going to be saying and so on. And of course, that's going to be helpful uh, as well. But, but it is a challenge and it's something I think, you know, we can all become better at. Yeah, I think I think, think that the point about speaking from the point of view of the listener, so the how to be heard thing, I think is very interesting and very, very much connects with um, the perspective of the book. Um, because the, the again, going back to the message in the bottle point, if you think you're just sending out a message in the bottle, you think you're, you, you've got to create a nice, clear message and you look at it and you think, oh, that, that, I, I totally understand my message i've said that beautifully off it goes into the bottle and off it floats off into the sea and anyone who picks it up it's their jolly fault if they can't understand me i've said it clearly then of course that's completely wrong if you imagine playing charades with someone who doesn't know a particular film or never never heard of a particular book and you think well i just can't understand why they're not getting it well the answer is you know they're they're the wrong generation right they they they, they, you know, they weren't around in the sort of 70s so they didn't they don't know about this movie movie or tv show or whatever so how on earth are they going to get it you need a different strategy so if you don't if you don't take that viewpoint then you're kind of doomed to fail and, and i think one of the problems so so i think it's really critical is a sense of how, what do i share what do the audience and the, the speaker share and that's got to be the basis. Uh, you can't do a anything that you don't share with your audience. There's, you, you can't afford to trade on it because you're going to get absolutely nowhere. And I, and I think one of the one of the, the problems we have as as speakers is it's very hard 
to to get out of the mindset of thinking that we all know the same stuff. That by default thinking there's just stuff. Everybody knows this stuff. It weirdly happens to be the stuff I know, uh, but anyway, it must be common to the humanity at large. And clearly that's nonsense. Um, but and we know it's nonsense. But but in practice, when we're in the um, process of communicating, I think we often we often throw that out of the window. And yet, of course, you see that a lot with. Um, uh, thinking about sort of corporate communications, you'll often get you know, sort of g- g- grand, well, you'll get grand um, speeches from the point of view of the company. In fact, I can remember a, a, an example, I won't go to the, the organization, but the organization I know very well, there's a sort of a, a, a new person taking over and a kind of grand uh, speech about how we're going to drive forward. And um, the, the driving forward was obviously going to be very problematic for about a quarter of the people. They had a kind of, you know, it's all about being world-class, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so if you're thinking, hmm, I'm not so sure I'm world-class, then that looks like I'm, I haven't got a place in this, 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 this organization anymore. What's going to happen to me? So, yeah, the, the, I remember this per- the, the person who was making the speech saying afterwards, I just can't understand it. You know, people just seem to be getting on board with this. Well, that's because you know, quite a large number of them are thinking, this could be disaster. This could be the end of my career. And what's going to happen to me? It's going to be a total hell to work here. Um, and yet, from the chief executive's point of view, his own perspective is, you know, driving off into the happy sunlit future. You know, what could be wrong with that? It's like, well, everything. If you're, if not obvious, if not obvious to you as a, as an employee, how on earth are you going to fit into this this, this world? Um, so that's you know that's a kind of extreme example. But maybe we, we fall into this trap all the time. I think just not not taking the time to think carefully about. Yeah, who's on the other side of this conversation? Um, what do they care about? What, how do they understand the world? What are their priorities? Oh, wow, they may be a bit different from mine. Well, yes, that's you know, almost always the case. Thank you for saying that because it's one of the real problems when it comes to transformation is is an, a clear articulation of a vision or even from the innovator's perspective. Many of our audience are heads of innovation or heads of transformation. And we will know clearly what the future holds or the new business model, whatever it might be. But we, and we'll often do the same thing as that CEO you mentioned, kind of going, they just don't get it. They're dinosaurs. They're stuck in the past. And when I, I, I have this saying is when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at yourself. You got to start with those because am I just sending out the message in the bottle and actually not making net tailoring it? like Morton said, for the audience. And this brings us nicely to Wittgenstein, who you mentioned many times throughout the book, and his idea of contextualizing the language or situational language and situational communication. This is essential when it comes to the language game. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the, the language game that the phrase, of course, goes is, is a Wittgenstein phrase, and we're not tying it directly to to his usage, but it, that's you know, that's where the, the whole idea of language as games really started. Um, and so Wittgenstein has this um, uh, kind of imaginary scenario where um, you have a, a, a somebody's help, one person's helping another um, in some sort of building building task, and they just say things like you know, slab and. I know a nail hammer or whatever it is. And again, going back to our message in the bottle thing, if I, if I say slab, you might think, well, you know, that's a, that's a pretty useless message. I mean, just what do I do supposed to do with the slab? But of course, in a practical situation, it may be obvious. Well, you know, I, I need the slab now. It's time to you know, put the cement down, time to put the slab on top or, um, or, or nail might be, you know, I, I need a nail or, um, or it might be that you know, this nail is broken, right? It could mean all sorts of things, but the, the, the the key is that the two the people in, involved in a dialogue are doing something together. They're doing a thing, 
And they, if they understand what that thing is, then they can use language fluidly to help them coordinate that behavior. So that's ultimately what language is trying to do. It's helping us work together and, 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 and allows humans to, to, to do collaborative, complicated collaborative things that no other, no other creature on the planet can do. Um, but that ability to do things together effectively requires a common understanding of what it is we are doing. Because then it's obvious that when I mention you know, slab or hammer or whatever, oh yeah, I'm in the middle of this. We both know I'm trying to do this thing. You're trying to help me. Therefore, the obvious, the obvious interpretation is this or that. But if we don't have that common understanding of what the task is, then we're in real trouble. I think in organizations, this is often the case. So essentially, the CEO is saying slab and people thinking, are thinking, well, I, I don't know what we're trying to do here. What, what, yeah, what, what do you mean in practice? Or like, what am I supposed to do next? Um, so they have no real sense of, and it's not perverse awkwardness. It's so they simply don't know what it is they're supposed to do. I mean, for an example that you hear a lot um, in different variations, but the general spirit of it is we must be, be more, and this is very relevant to the show, of course, innovative and, and perhaps risk-taking. Um, and as a, if I'm listening to this from, from, from the top, I'm thinking, well, you know, what does innovation and risk-taking mean for me? Um, does that mean I you know, bypass a few corporate procedures and don't worry about uh, that? Or I mean, is, that kind of, is that good or is that terrible? Am I going to get totally hammered? Um, so as soon as I try and do anything, I run into some kind of barrier. Should I think, ah, oh, well, just don't worry about that. You know, that's just that's the throwaway experience and just have a crack at doing something totally different. Or am I going to get again? Am I going to get totally hammered if I do that and it doesn't work? And um, when people are talking about risk taking, does that mean that if I take a risk and it fails, I'm going to be supported? Or does it mean in practice I'm not going to be supported? I'm going to be told I was a, that was an idiotic risk to take. So I think oh, perhaps the risk taking I'll leave to somebody else. It, nobody really knows, and because they don't know. It's like trying to build build something together, but we don't know what it, we're trying to build and quite how it's supposed to look. Um, and if you don't communicate that that sense of what our, what our task is and how we're going to be working together, so everybody's on the same page on that, then each individual communication is going to be taken. I, a, it may not be understood at all, but also it can also be viewed with great suspicion. So people can hear that, even hear and understand the message, and still think, "Hmm, well, that's what they're saying. What does that mean in practice? I'm going to be. I'm going to wait." I'll be, I'll be that dinosaur. Just you know, um, I'm not going to scurry out and start um, you know, trying to make a change because I might just make the wrong change, and then I'll be, you know, then I'll be sorry. And you know, I think uh, anyone who's worked in a, a large uh, organization of any kind has a sense of just how, you know, how difficult it is to know what the rules really are, what you're really supposed to do. And so I think, yeah, I, I think this is, you know, this is a folk, folk, this is that sense that we're always. We're using language. Language is a sort of game, but also it's embedded in the larger game we're playing, the kind of interactions and um, common endeavors we're engaged in. If we don't have a common understanding of those, um, you know, the language is never, the communication is never going to be very easy. By by considering just the, the fundamental collaborative nature of language, that's where the notion of metaphor that you mentioned earlier becomes very important, that you need to think not so much about what you want to say, but what, how can you make other people understand what you're trying to get across? And I think it's the, oftentimes we think too much about what I want to say and the point I want to get across, which of course is important, but really trying to do sort of audience uh, design, audience recognition, sort of figuring out how can I express this in a way that makes sense, given that the audience might be coming from very different uh, sort of perspectives than where I'm coming from. I and mean, certainly if you're, if you're talking, coming into a new organization, you're talking to them, it's very important to have some idea about what will, what will my words mean for, uh, the, 
the people I'm talking to in this particular organization and so on. I think oftentimes maybe there's not enough thought or emphasis put on that, um, even though I'm sure people try. I, I love that. And um, I, I just thought of a way to kind of bring these together. One of the things being that, you know, we were saying about the, the different colors, so pale blue, light blue, and then Greek having a different word for both of those. And I thought also about how if you put, so one of the things the researchers did there was they had scanners on people's brains, so fMRI scanners. And I was like, imagine doing that for a change initiative and announcing the big change and see how different people's amygdalas light up because they will perceive it very differently. Some people will get excited and probably that population of people who get excited will be very small. But then I thought about the flip side, which is to your point earlier, Nick, about the CEO and the organization communicating the change is that as that communication gets passed down the layers of the organization, it probably gets muddied. And that's a nice link to the telephone game that you talk about in the game and all in the book. And also the, even the images as people sketch the images over time. And I won't spoil it. I'll let you guys tell the story. But one image, one animal becomes an entirely different animal as it's passed down through different levels of generations, essentially. Uh, the, the study that you're referring to with the with the pictures, what he had people do there was first he showed them essentially a hieroglyph, a, a, an Egyptian hieroglyph there of, of an owl, and then he had people reproduce it. Uh, so they, they saw the owl for a short amount of time, and then they had to sort of try to draw it. And then uh, and that whatever they drew would be given to another person that saw that new drawing and then had to reproduce it and so on and so forth. And over time, what happened that the owl, the hieroglyph turned into essentially a picture of a cat, which was sort of kind of, it's kind of neat when you see all of them together, you can sort of see gradually sort of morphs into a cat. Now he did another version of it that sort of, uh, that, that's sort of relevant for uh, sort of for organizations perhaps is that where you can see how the background culture that uh, individuals have can influence the message they uh, the message they perceive. So what he did in this context is that he told these were just uh, undergraduate students, I think at Cambridge or something like that, that they would be told a story taken from uh, an anthropologist uh, sort of collection of stories from uh, the United States. So these were sort of in, uh, Native American stories. And there was one story about two Native American, they, they were going on a hunting trip and so on. And so what he had, the people listened to this, or, or they think they either listened to or they read the story, and then they had to reproduce it themselves. And then whatever they would write down would be given to another person and so on and so forth down the line. And what happened is that it's essentially just turned into essentially a hunting story where somebody kills somebody else. So all the sort of the more, the, the, the general ghostly and sort of spiritual elements of it that they couldn't, they didn't make sense to them, just disappear from the story. So very much, you can imagine the same might happen, happen in an organizational context where there might be all sort of general ideas that are laid out from, from the top. And then as it goes down through different layers, it turns into essentially what people at different layers might consider given what they know before. And so it's important to sort of keep in mind when you're beginning the uh, to lay to present information what the sort of background perspectives of individuals are because that's going to change things as it goes that as it that message moves through the organization an anecdote on that uh, is that um a very large retailer in the uk um who i used to um know well i had a had internally the 
um, the view that if they wanted to propagate any message across the entire organization, well, A, they, they, their maximum was three messages a year. So they said, we're only, we can only conceivably communicate three things to our whole staff. Just we're kidding ourselves if we think we can do more than that. And they also said, it, they've also got to be messages you can formulate as if you were writing a sun headline. Um, and that's not to talk, talk down to their, their, their workforce. It's just that if it's not simple, it won't get transmitted. So people need to be able to remember it and say it to each other. So, oh, yeah, but we're supposed to be doing this, aren't we? So it might be, you know, like keep your cues down to you know, no more than two people or it might, might be you know, something about restocking or it might, whatever it is. But it's got to be simple and you can't have more than three a year. Um, so that's, you know, that, but that's it's a rather rare case where an organization was extremely aware of this fundamental limitation. But many organizations uh, spend their entire time deluging their poor employees with endless, endless memos and updates and new policies and as, as if you've got limitless ability to deal with all this stuff and then and cascade this down to your team and think, oh, good grief as a manager. You think, oh, heavens, how am I going to you know, handle this massive information and somehow you know, I mean, help everybody understand it? So I think we need to be really, really um, sort of realistic about you know, what it's possible for us all to to, to grasp. And if you think about political campaigns, of course, the most effective political campaigns, it's sort of a sad fact, whether it's just a reality, is that most effective political campaigns have extremely few ideas in them, often one, and a handy message, a handy, a handy slogan or two, uh, but usually one. Um, and that's sort of, you know, that's sort of the sweet spot, because if you're going to transmit in such a way that people can pick up the idea and tell, tell their friends and neighbors and the thing's going to actually not get lost, so we're not, not going to have the problem of the the war of the ghost story that, that Morton mentioned, where all the nuance gets lost. You've got to find the core and think that's the thing I want to transmit, and just stick to that. Um, so I think it's really very interesting just how how little we can successfully propagate across large numbers of people. If we're going to try and convince a lot of people of anything, we better choose the target really, really carefully. It's a nice segue for the idea of new machines from old bricks as well where you talk in the book about how may, maybe we probably should mention Chomsky and Pinker as well and uh, how you how you view their theories versus your own theory and maybe we'll do it in this way where y you say essentially you take Darwin's theory of evolution and you go we, we adapted and therefore we were able to speak but what you say is actually language adapted to us it, you know the way I saw it was kind of like Michelangelo's block of stone and in there there was a statue and over time you chipped away to make it suit your your needs or everybody's statue was different depending on their context and their various colors of blue because maybe the ocean had different colors of blue and therefore I needed a different color for a light blue versus dark blue to indicate depth or whatever it was and these are important theories to understand because when you juxtapose them with your theory, you can see the, the departure that you're making with the language game. The, the general idea was that somehow we had built into our brains over time. Evolution had endowed us with knowledge of language that would constrain how languages would be formed. So, so it's kind of sort of almost like a set of rules or a template for, for languages that would be highly constraining. Um, the, the problem is that that from an evolutionary perspective, that it's not easy to see how you would actually get there. And so the, the focus on from Pinker's and Chomsky's uh, perspective is that, you know, why is the brain so well adapted for learning language? 
And so what we are trying to do in the book is sort of turning that question upside down is, uh, is sort of asking, why is language so well adapted to be learned by human brains? And then we're actually borrowing from, from Darwin himself. He does suggest in uh, his book, The Descent of Man, that uh, languages themselves are sort of the, the, the words, the phrases, the various structures are sort of competing with one another to be used more. And we see that in language change across time. Languages change very, very quickly uh, across time. So, for example, it took only about 7,000 years uh, for, for two languages as different as Danish and Hindi to evolve from a common ancestor. Uh, yet today, you know, somebody speaking Danish like myself, you know, I have a hard time understanding Hindi and my source. So they're very different in the language, both the sounds, the, the, the structure of the language and everything is, is very different. Um, well, although, but on the flip side, biological evolution is incredibly slow by comparison. So, um, it took, uh, so we're talking about millions of years, a hundred thousands of years. And so from that perspective, Languages became essentially, or rather forms, a moving target for natural selection that natural selection can't sort of catch up with. And so it makes more sense for languages themselves to adapt to whatever pre-existing uh, constraints that comes from the way our body works, the way our brains work, the way our thought processes work. And that means that across cultures, as humans sort of spread out throughout the world, uh, and became isolated from one another, different languages would gradually emerge across time uh, because, as you were saying, so in some places they needed to talk about color of this. Other places, color didn't really matter. That's why some languages maybe only have two colors, whereas English has about nine color terms, for example. So, And, and so that kind of change in the languages themselves is what drive the, um, the flexibility and the sort of co collaborative use of language. And, and just to, to, to add to that, the, the, the sort of Chomsky-Pink perspective and they, the differences between the two of them, their starting point, as Morton says, is that the, the structure of language, its sort of abstract form is, is, is built in as kind of a blueprint for how languages have to be. And there are lots of variations, uh, but they're all variations within that blueprint. And the, um, and the two things they want to explain, and there are many, but the two, two most important ones are, as, as, as Morton indicated, why are we so good at learning languages? So the answer to that was, well, it's sort of built in. I mean, apart from the, 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 the tweaks, we just have basically the, the abstract structure of languages just wired into our heads. That's supposedly the case. And the other thing is, why, why do languages have these universal properties? So you know, if you look across languages, there are you know, there are some patterns, or at least it appears to be there are some patterns which are stable across languages. So the, the question is why, and of course, if you have this um, universal grammar wired into your brain and wired ultimately into your genes, then that would be an explanation. But neither of those stories really works very well. So Morton said something about why um, the uh, the idea that the um, that 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 we need an explanation for how kids can learn language so quickly that that's a bit that's a that doesn't really um, it doesn't really isn't really necessary from our perspective because because languages have shaped themselves around us. So what languages have evolved, have evolved to be learnable. If language is hard to learn, I'm not speaking it. Um, so kids are going to always prefer the ways of communicating which are easy to learn and use, and that's you're just going to drive the way languages are. And that would be true for every other cultural artifact too. Uh, so you know, so the, the successful tools are easy for, to, for us to use. Successful. Um, uh, festival uh, songs um, uh, are easier for us to remember, and you know, that's just an inevitable, inevitable fact about the cu cultural evolution. So the, 
the, the mapping, the match between kids' learning abilities and the, the products that they're actually learning is just a kind of inevitable feature of the process of cultural evolution. But on the language universal side, the question of, you know, our language is really all the same. Now, you might think, well, if we take the, tell this um, story where Shiraz is occurring independently and in, in, in different ways with different constraints in different parts of the world, then you know, languages could be sort of infinitely varied. Well, um, that's not quite right. So first of all, they are incredibly varied. So many of the supposedly universal features that um, that, that the linguists used to think of as, 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 as stable, mysteriously stable across languages are much less stable than you think. So as more linguists have looked at um, a wide variety of languages outside the European tradition, um, more carefully it just you know, they just these universals just keep breaking down so you have languages which don't seem to have more than a couple of syntactic categories at all um, you have languages with all kinds of crazy um patterns of of, of word or, or order you have languages with syntactic categories that don't exist in european languages or indo-european languages at all well, all kinds of complexity and strangeness so really the, the variety is great but to the extent there isn't, you, you get similarities, then that's not surprising because the communicative challenges we're facing are the same. So it's a bit like if you imagine looking at how people are doing charades for, I don't know, dog across the world. And um, that goes back to the Perlman study with the vocal charades too, for uh, people around the world are able to, to, to do the same vocal charade for you know, water or boiling the kettle or whatever. The reason is the world is imposing constraints on us. We need to communicate about these things that the world actually has in it that matter to us, which have particular properties. So we're going to use the same sort of strategies. And also there are going to be things like the fact that if you want to um, communicate about a limitless number of things, you've got to recombine your existing charades. You can't just have a charade for every possible message. That's never going to work because you, know, you need to you need to, be able to deal with new messages. So you're going to have to have something like recombinable words with some kind of grammar. You can't avoid that. But that's not that doesn't, have, doesn't have to be wired into us. It's just an automatic product of the sort of charade creation process. So it's essentially it's our common humanity and the common problems we face that lead to the similarities. But in truth, the, 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 there used to be a kind of stylized fact about human language, which was that if you look really closely, you'd find all languages had all kinds of hidden similarities and deep patterns. And I think, I think the consensus in comparative linguistics and this is not, not a field that either of us work in but i think the consensus in comparative linguistics these days i.e looking at across different languages and comparing them um is that that's just that 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 that, that perspective just evaporates the closer the more closely it's examined and, and at the risk of being a bit of a man with a hammer and seeing nails everywhere <laughs> um i thought about how in the same way you know you're as the need changes or the constraint is in is in place if I'm, if I'm all of a sudden as a leader of an organization saying we need innovation, I need to articulate why to our organization, I need to give them the why or the mission behind that in order for them to kind of go, ah, now, now I get it. Now I can see why we even need a common language behind this thing to everybody to understand and be on the same page. But one of the things I, I thought I'd share with our audience is just to show how we, we have this ability to adapt is the beautiful diagram of cuckoo baba or booba and i'm going to show it on the screen for our audience and maybe you might elaborate on what it's about and the importance of it in in your thesis yeah so this is this is a wonderful study that goes back quite a long time to a german scientist uh, wolfgang kuhler uh, working in the canary islands and uh, he called it something different, but over time it's morphed into sort of two words, kiki 
and Bupa. And if you hear these two words and you look at this picture uh, on the screen, if you were to guess which of these two shapes uh, is called Bupa and which of these two shapes is called Kiki, then most people would say that this spiky looking shape would be called Kiki and the sort of blobby uh, shape would be called Bupa. And that actually, if you have that intuition, then you share that with many, many people, not just English-speaking people, but people from Africa, people from India, and many other places. And even fairly young children will make similar kind of, of patterns. And this is sort of goes back to this notion that in the, in the sound of words, that can actually be some clues to what they might mean. Um, and so... Uh, this has been studied quite extensively, and, and originally it was thought that the, the relationship between sound and meaning was completely arbitrary, meaning that there is that the sound of a word doesn't tell you what it means. And of course, this is true for many words. So, if you have, say, the word for for tree in English is called Baum in German, it's called Tre uh, in Danish, which is quite similar to tree. Um, it's called Arbre in uh, French, and so on. So, there the sounds are very different. Nonetheless, there are some, some subtle uh, aspects of the sound that nonetheless can still tell us something about the meaning of words. So, for example, one study that I was involved with, we looked at more than 6,000 different languages and found there was a number of sound that would indicate certain a aspects of meaning, not, not sort of completely categorically, but they would sort of provide you a subtle clue that can be overwritten, of course, just like uh, the, what we talked about earlier that the that a language doesn't uh, completely constrain what you can think. Likewise, the sound doesn't completely constrain what a word can mean. But nonetheless, there are these subtle clues that we can use. And in particular, it's been suggested that children can use this to sort of get into the language, figuring out that why all these adults, they're spewing all these sounds out all the time. And, and this can give you perhaps some handle on what the words might mean and that there actually might be a meaning for words in the language, or at least uh, 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 that they can be referring to something, even though it's not going to be a stable meaning, of course. One of the things that's interesting is that, um, as, as Morton says, the assumption has been historically that there's no relationship between sound and meaning, that's completely orthogonal. Um, and, and, and that isn't right, that there, are, there are all these patterns. Um, but on the other hand, it is interesting how um, loose that is. I and mean, you might think, well, why don't we all have the same word for dog, which is just woof? Um, and and so you, you could imagine that we, we just stick with some sort of iconic representation and every language would be kind of, you know, there'd be a woof and a woof and a you know, bow wow or something, but they'd all be roughly the same. Um, but but that's not right. Um, and and our, our colleague uh, and collaborator, Padre Monaghan, uh, now at Lancaster University, had a very interesting insight into why that is the case and why there's this semblance of, of um, arbitrariness. And the idea is that if you have your, if you have words which where, where the sound and the meaning are very tied together, then you have a lot of trouble when you are in a situation where the the contextual clues are telling, are giving you clues about the meaning of what, what's being said. So I'm I'm pointing to something and say, oh, can you get me to such and such? And you're thinking, well, it's got to be a cup or a mug or a uh, a beaker or because we're in the kitchen. Um, and then and if I so so the contextual cues are, are going to be clues about meaning. But if all those things, if if cup and mug and beaker and, and beaker and saucer all had similar sounds, then we're in trouble because which is it, right? So we imagine they all have the you know, they're all sort of cup or 
cug or cud or something. This is like disastrous because now we just can't tell the difference. So what you want is that the the, the meaning information is sort of like separated, is all sort of orthogonal from the actual sound information because the meaning information is what you're getting from the environment and you need the, the sound information to, to pick out the, the specific case. So an, another example would be if you're at the dog show, then if you had all those dogs, if every breed of dog was a basic variation of woof, then when you want to actually you know, just to say, oh, that that's the you know that's my favorite type of dog, you'd be in terrible trouble because you know, people would be saying, oh, which woof was that exactly? Uh, so you want to have you know, dachshunds and poodles and, um, and and great Danes with totally different names. So there's there's a, an automatic sort of evolutionary process, a sort of cultural evolutionary process to try and drive the meanings and the sounds of words actually to be quite independent. Uh, but and that process is, is what leads to this apparent arbitrariness. And what the work that by by Morton and, and and many other colleagues, including Padre, has shown is that even though that's true, there's a kind of deep imprint of connectedness. Nonetheless, there's these clues that never get quite eliminated that uh, mean that there there are always these subtle subtle relationships between sound and meaning. But there's nonetheless there's a pressure against it. You know, a, a language if you made up a language um, which tied sound and meaning together, it's going to going to fail pretty badly. In fact, there was was uh, in the 1700s, there was a guy called Wilkins who was trying to sort of come up with the perfect language where each individual sound or, in this case, letters would map onto and different aspects of meaning. But it, it was completely unusable, that language. Nobody could learn it. And he kept on making mistake himself, mistake when he was trying to use it. But it was sort of this idea of the perfect language that would sort of completely eliminate all the sort of messiness there is in real language but but the problem is that real language is messy because we are using it in the moment collaboratively to figure out and, and normally it doesn't matter because we work together to figure out what we are trying to say but if you try to sort of sort of straight jacket it into a rigid system that's just not going to work for it doesn't going to fit the flexibility of language as it changes as we use it uh, to interact with one another Beautiful. And I was, I have to say more, and I was, I was envious of the time you spent in the Santa Fe Institute. We had, um, on the show we had, I don't know if, if, if he was director when you were there, but George West was on the show. Oh, yeah. Jeffrey, yeah. Sorry. Jeffrey yeah. West was on, the, on the show. We did a, a five part series on his book scale, which is a magnificent book mm -hmm. on emergence and complexity theory. We also did uh, an eight-part series on the life of D. Hawk, who was the founder of Visa and his concept of K-order, which was very close to the hearts of those in the Santa Fe Institute. But I love the concept of emergence of language, that it emerged over time and that we, you know, I, I just had this concept of whitt whittling a stick or, you know, the drawing out the sculpture from the stone that over time that we adapted it and we we made it fit to our needs, whatever culture or, 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 or context that we're in. But one of the studies that you mentioned in the book was baboons recognizing language as well, recognizing the structure of words. And I thought that was fascinating. Maybe you'll share a bit about your experience in Santa Fe Institute and indeed the idea of language as, as an emergent quality. Yeah, that was that was a, a, a truly amazing time. I spent sort of nine months there um, on, on sabbatical, and it, it, it it's, it's a it's it's a truly amazing place where where you go to different talks. So one day you learn about 
um, the Krebs cycle, which is sort of the, the chemistry of, of life and so on. And then other, type, other times you hear about economics, um, then you hear about um, um, something or from Los Alamos for, about physics. So you get so your mind stressed in all way, but everything is sort of centered around the notion of uh, emergence that structure can self-organize, whether that's in economic systems, whether that's in language, whether that's in uh, ecology. And so this notion that underlies the, uh, the, much of the work at the Santa Fe Institute is this notion of self-organization at different levels in different systems and how we can study it and how we can learn from looking across different areas, different domains where you, you bring people together who normally would never see each other because of the way we are sort of situated at say universities or in companies, but actually bring people together um, and sort of start understanding how we can use this this notion of emergence to and self-organization to understand things like language, things like you know the uh, economies or ecologies as it were and actually an interesting example of emergence which is very core really to that perspective on on um science really and not just uh, in the concept of language this idea that you know, complex complex structures emerge um as it were from below is is, is the, the astounding um observations in nick regular and schools for the for deaf children in the 70s um and and beyond so the, the sort of starting point there was that that children were for, who, who had profound deafness were put into special schools with the intention of teaching them to uh, to, to learn vocal language, essentially by lip reading. So the idea was that they, so that they would be um, able to, to speak um, speak Spanish. And this was pretty profound failure. It didn't work at all well. But what it meant was, this is not the intention, but what it meant was that you had lots of kids who were uh, not able to uh, communicate through vocal language because that, 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 that was not working um, and they didn't have a common sign language either and um, so they had but they had to get along they were you know, with each other you know 24 7 for, 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 for months and years um, so what do they do what what they did spontaneously in this extraordinarily emergent way is create a language you know, which is now called Nicaraguan sign language and that language is you know it's, it's a pretty complex language it has a, a fairly large vocabulary um, not as large as English, which is a ridiculously large vocabulary language, um, but a pretty substantial vocabulary and a complex grammar and essentially what is now called a phonology. You might think of phonology, that's about sound, isn't it? But you have that, an, an equivalent of that in the context of the sign language. And the sign language is is not at all, um, to, uh, for people who are uh, outsiders of the sign language world, which obviously I am too, but uh, if you're very far outside, you might think, well, sign language is it's going to be sort of iconic. It's kind of making um, gestures which kind of represent the thing that you're, um, you're you're thinking about quite directly, uh, but that's not really right. That's that's often the way things start. So you, you know, a, a, a sign for a tree or dog or something might might have some resemblance to a tree or a dog, but that soon gets stylized and simplified um, very very quickly. And that stylization means that you're creating something essentially which is a symbol. And the patterns and sequences in which those symbols are used become more and more standardized in exactly the way that um, you'd expect if you're saying seeing languages are kind of layered charade upon charade and you get something within a period of a decade or two which looks really like you know a, a, a natural language just a regular language and that's been created from scratch with no nobody intending it no one's trying to create a language they're just trying to communicate moment by moment and you're just trying to get messages across uh, of, of direct and immediate import but that's forcing the creation of richer and richer communicative system 
Now, when that was originally discovered, this, the assumption was, aha, well, this shows that reproves the, um, the Chomsky-Pinker universal grammar story because, look, these, these kids are just creating a language from nothing, so they must have it built into them. Uh, and, of course, our starting point would be to say, no, that's completely the wrong way to look at it. Um, what you should be seeing is that, is that this is a, an example of the amazing charade, charade playing um, origins of language in, in action. Um, and that's happened multiple times. So that's happened there, but it's also happened in, uh, in other, other communities as well. Uh, it happens to some degree when, when you have language contact. So if you have two groups of people with very different um, uh, language, no overlapping language, who are in contact for a prolonged periods. So Cook and House were only in contact for a few days. But if you're having to work together for long periods, then you tend to get languages, new languages appearing, um, which themselves yeah, have a have a you know, a complex regular structure, um, just like just like every other language. So the ability to c- c- continually create new languages, either from nothing or by mixtures of old languages, that's you know, that's just universal of, of, of uh, human history, really. So you know, we're language is this astonishing emergent phenomenon. It's a sort of a collective invention of amazing complexity, and none of us can none of us can invent our own language. I mean, people try to quote you know, make up a language, invent Esperanto or an Elfish language or whatever, or Klingon or something. But these are really just variations of you know, languages that we we speak already. And anyway, to the extent that they're not, to the extent that these artificial languages, like the one that John Wilkins um, mentioned that Morton talked about earlier, they just don't work very well. The languages that work. Are the ones that people just create without even trying. So, this is, so in some ways, I think we, we'd see language as humanity's greatest invention. But ironically, it's not an invention any particular person invented or with any intention of inventing anything. Um, we're just struggling to communicate. And then as a side effect, we create this amazing system um, which allows us to transform what we can do. And, and maybe you'll share, I, I think, we'll start to land the ship because one of the most beautiful stories you share in the book was in the 1800s. And the question you start off here is, imagine you can't, you're in darkness, you can't hear, you've lost your sense of smell, and you can't communicate in any sense. The only thing you have left is the sense of touch. And this is how a very young two-year-old Laura Bridgman found herself. But it just shows you the resilience of the will to communicate, but also somebody gave her a chance and helped her communicate as well. And this led to a remarkable story. And and it's such a beautiful story. And also one of the reasons I wanted to share this was because she didn't get the credit she deserved and she's kind of been lost to history a little bit. So I wanted to make sure that at least we can carry the story on and pass on the baton into the future. I'm very glad you, you brought that, that up because initially when I started to look at that story, I was looking at, at Helen Keller, which of course is, it was sort of similar situation, uh, and, and whom everybody knows today. But Laura Bridgman was actually the original Helen Keller, uh, if you wish. So she, she was born to sort of a, a relatively poor family, uh, in, uh, New Hampshire and, um, uh, due to illness that hit the whole family, she got, as you mentioned, blind, deaf. She lost her sense of uh, taste and um, and and smell too uh, around the age of two. And 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 she did have a few words before that, but then she completely lost them, and she was kind of lost in the sort of the darkness and lack lack of contact uh, with people. But then. Um, 
somebody from the Perkins School of the Blinds in Boston heard about her case and brought her there. And what he did was to try to first teach her essentially to read. And this is very unusual because this is actually a case of somebody whose entry into language is through reading, whereas most people learn first to speak and then they learn to read or they learn to sign and then they learn to read. But in her case, what he did, he created these um, these letters that were raised so you could feel the, the letters with your fingertips. And then he would uh, sort of have the letter like B-O-O-K for book, for example, or uh, other kinds of letters. And then she would sort of feel a book and she would feel the letters and so on. And then he would cut them up after she learned that and she picked that up quickly, he would cut uh, the letters so they would be separate. And then we, he would sort of mess, she would sort of uh, randomize them. And then she had to put them together. That was really hard for her. She got very mad because she just figured out this other system. But then she learned that too. And then at some point she just, she kind of, she got this insight that she could actually um, that he, that she could combine letters in new ways to, to understand new things. And then once she got that, she learned fingerspelling, which is essentially where you, you sort of, you make shapes in the hand of somebody else. And then they can, by feeling it in their hand, they can feel what the shapes are, uh, because of course they can't see it. They can't hear it. And that actually allows you to spell out, um, all sort of words and so on. And once she learns that, she kind of took off and were able to communicate with loads of things. And she, be, she was sort of like really wanted to learn all sort of new words. And she became very famous. So they had exhibition days uh, at the Perkins Institute where people from all around would come to see her. Uh, and she would sort of, you know, sort of talk to talk to people using her finger spelling. And um, she became so famous, actually, that one time when Charles Dickens came over to the U.S., he traveled around the U.S., and he wrote about her in his travel logs, which was about his uh, sort of tour around the U.S. And so at the time, she was one of the most famous women in the world, about, you know, at, at, as famous as Queen Victoria at the time. Yet today, most people don't know of her. And so what happened was that over time, um, she you know, there was still a lot of interest in her at the Perkins Institute. So what was interesting that, that later on, uh, she would actually teach Anne Sullivan uh, to do the fingerspelling. And of course, it's Anne Sullivan who eventually sort of brought Helen Keller into the world of language by teaching her fingerspelling. And and so it, it, it's sad that, that nobody knows about Laura Bridgman now. And part of it is that, that Helen Keller came from a wealthy background, uh, she was prettier, and 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 despite the fact that when Laura Bridgman was uh, at her sort of height of her fame, girls around the U.S. would create little uh, Laura Bridgman Laura dolls, where they would take the dolls, poke out the eyes, and then put a little grand, uh, little green uh, ribbon around because that's what she would wear around uh, her her eyes, or or she would wear sunglasses, uh, Laura Bridgman. And so, so girls had these Laura dolls all over the US. Um, but then today, nobody knows about it. But what's important about this story is that it really shows the resilience of human language that even in the absence of most of, most of our abilities to uh, express ourselves, like we do normally either by words or by sign, she was able to sort of get into language and communicate with the world. And it shows just how how fundamental our drive to communicate is, but also the flexibility of human language that even without 
the normal sort of channels of communication, sign or spoken language, she was able to uh, live a f- live a relatively full life and way of commu- and be able to communicate with everybody around her using uh, fingerspelling. So it's a truly amazing story. I absolutely love the the story of Laura Bridgman. It's such a, a beautiful story of resilience and just human spirit, just how to make it through. But also I, I really love the idea of the man who took a bet on her and took an interest in her and changed her life. And, you know, how an amazing impact that we can have on people's lives if we if we do things like that. But there's one last piece and it it, may, it was hidden in the epilogue, but I wasn't escaping me, guys. I wasn't letting it go. And I thought it was of interest to our audience because we often cover artificial intelligence and machine learning on the, on the show. And you talk about the impact of the singularity and can language save us from the singularity? Maybe you'll say a, a quick few words about this. Yes, I, I want to be reassuring here. So yeah, it's it's quite common now for people to worry that artificial intelligence systems, particularly GPT-3 and the la- large language models that are becoming so modish, and they are amazing, um, is, is somehow approaching human levels of intelligence. And I think when, when you think about the way human um, language actually works, you realize that's really not what's going on at all. So what humans are able to do is to play this charade-like game where we can take a, you know, words and a situation and play around with the words and craft the situation to communicate what we need to communicate. Um, and that is something that is completely different from what, what these large language models are doing. So what they're doing is they're hoovering up gigantic amounts of text from the web and they're sort of knitting it together um, for new purposes. So you ask it a question out there on the web, there's a lot of language. It'll fish out the language, weld it together very, very cleverly, pull it, pull you out an answer. But it's got no contact with the world. So, so the thing about language is it's a way, in a Shiraz-like way of, communi- of connecting world, the reality around us with the symbols that we can use. But the, the world of um, these large language models is entirely um, internal to language. So it's like you know, taking a, a soup of language, knitting it, knitting it together in new ways. Connection to the world, absolutely absent. So these, these models don't have any connection, conception. There's a world that's at all out there, in fact. And what they're able to do is to, is to as it were, fool us that they're understanding uh, about the world. But really, they're just repurposing think, that language that humans have created already. So I think, although these models are truly incredible, they are by no means as disturbing as you might think. The idea that we're going to hit the singularity when suddenly AI becomes more intelligent than we are, um, that I think is, is, is far-fetched indeed because um, no, the language models that we have that work well now uh, don't work at all by connecting language with reality. But that's what humans are all about. And I think a lesson also from, from the book is that the last thing we should do is to teach computers to play charades. Then we might be in trouble. <laughs> they can do it. We're in trouble. Absolutely. I hope they. Can. I think they'll find it pretty hard. <laughs> Guys, I have a quote that I I pulled from the book. I have a practice of pulling a quote to finish the show from my perspective, and then I'm going to hand over to you, maybe for your final message that what you intended from this book. And before I give that quote, where can people find you if they want to find out a bit more about your work? I know you've co-authored and individually authored multiple papers and books of your own. Where can people find you best? 
Well, my, my, for me, Nick, um, I'd, I'd point you to my um, other popular book, The Mind is Flat, which is a book not specifically about language, but about how cognition works. And of course, just if you just put either of our names into Google, you'll get our, our websites. Yeah, and me, you can also um, uh, find me through uh, Google, of course. And then I'm also the director of the Cognitive Science of Language Lab at Cornell University, where uh, there's more about the work that I do. Awesome. And I'll make sure to have them in the show notes as well. I'm going to give a final quote and then I'm going to hand to each of you then to close the today's show, not to put you on the spot. So I'll give you a bit of time to think and prepare, <laughs> like we talked about earlier on, to script write while I give this quote. I absolutely love this. I pulled this and I just thought that it spoke to me and hopefully to our audience. You wrote, Communication may be universal across species, but language is uniquely human. It is, it is the fundamental flexibility of language combined with our built-in desire to communicate that allows us to play linguistic charades, whether through spoken words, manual signs, or even touch like Laura Bridgman. These repeated games of charades culminate in a spectacular diversity of languages that enable humanity to accumulate knowledge of all the things that language can express across generations. As we shall see, each language carries within it the seeds of further cultural flourishing. Our powers of endless linguistic improvisation provide the catalyst for the creation of human culture and society in all its dazzling variety. Beautiful. Over to you guys. Well, all I'll, all I'll add to that is that I think it really is, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique psychological characteristics of humans, our amazing improvisation abilities and our amazing collaboration abilities that allowed us to create language. But language itself, once we've created it, um, has a momentum of its own, which has completely reshaped what it's possible to, to do. Without language, we wouldn't be obviously having conversations like this, writing books. Um, we wouldn't be uh, able to do interesting science and technology, build religions, create laws, Essentially, human culture is, is soaked with language in a way that we scarcely know, generally realize. And it's, you know, language is sort of fundamental to, to everything that makes us uniquely human. And I think also on top of that, that the, one of the things that, we, that I think is very important uh, message of the book is that the sort of essential collaborative and imp improvisational nature of language. And um, if we take that into account when we are communicating with one another, maybe that can create better interaction and better understanding uh, between everyone. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful message to finish with. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, authors of The Language Game, how improvisation created language and changed the world. Morton Christensen and Nick Chater, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having us, it's been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed the language game. I want to thank our sponsor Next Estate, who specialized in the English language in the German market for buying, selling and managing property. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.de or next-estate.com. See you very soon.